5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. Yes, that's right. This is The Punch Out. It is the 10th of December, 2020. We are back with you here as we always are, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday here at Breakthrough News. Very happy to be back with you today. All sorts of things, as we always have for you here on the show. We have some information, new migrant caravans coming out of Honduras, but I'll tell you uh, a lot of the old hypocrisy around immigration also at play there as well. Capitalism got a brand new con out on Black America. This was a Wall Street Journal exclusive this morning. That seems apropos. But before we get to those two stories, we are going to turn to our first, which is uh, about defunding the police in the epicenter of the recent uprising that has swept the country against racism and police terror. Well, if there is a Cowardly Lion Award out there to award somewhere to some group of people, I think we could give it this year to the Minneapolis City Council. Last night, a council vote allegedly about addressing issues of police terror ended up as basically being a complete reversal from an earlier pledge by the council to dismantle the police department in response to the criticisms raised by the mass uprising there this spring in Minneapolis after the murder of George Floyd. Ultimately, they voted to move $8 million out of a $179 million police budget into some other social services, but most importantly, perhaps to the way the story was going, leaving the number of police officers right where it was, despite previous plans to reduce it from 888 officers to 750. Now, this is almost a complete turnaround, and this complete turnaround is a perfect example of how, despite rhetorically exploiting it for the election, Democratic Party pledges to, quote-unquote, make Black Lives Matter and address police terrorism in the black community ring totally hollow. And at the local level, and that's where policing really happens at the local level, how resistant Democratic Party officials are to any substantive change in Policing. Now, the purported issue behind the change there in Minneapolis, 25% increase in violent crime this year in the city, according to police statistics. That's also an excuse that's been used by Democratic officials in Chicago and D.C. and in Los Angeles to avoid significantly addressing police terrorism in their jurisdictions. But this is exactly the point. The point of the movement to defund the police is not that there is not crime and thus no need for police, but that the police are not an effective way of addressing public safety. It's a critique which notes that quote-unquote crime is deeply rooted in a context of poverty, deprivation, and trauma, among other things, and that without addressing these root causes of this social conflicts, safety can never be secured. Note, for instance, just think our ideal images of safety when you close your eyes and think of being in a safe neighborhood. It's not one where there are cops on every corner. It's one where there are no cops around or even necessary. And further, all over this country, violence interruption efforts have shown that without any cops at all, there are programs that have reduced murders between 30% to 70% in some of the toughest cities and neighborhoods in this country when it comes to community violence. Those are rates that are as good as, if not better than, uh, police murder clearance rates, but with a big difference, a huge difference. Violence interruption is preventative and thus saves lives. The police come after you're dead. How are movement leaders around the country viewing this decision? Well, we spoke to Sean Blackman, a longtime organizer in the District of Columbia against police terror, to get his reaction. 
When we look at this issue of the Minneapolis City Council backtracking on its pledge to dismantle the local police department, I, I think we can toss it in the big pile of things that are disappointing but not surprising, right? And honestly, I kind of expected this to happen uh, from the time they first announced it because for them to go through with dismantling the police department, it would be too much of a betrayal to the ruling class that the police are in place to protect. And let's look at, at how Minneapolis is moving $8 million from the police budget to city services. Eight, eight million out of $179 million budget. I mean, which is nothing. That That's not the funding that's crumbs. It's hard not to see that as a theft of resources from the people of Minneapolis, right? And really, I think it shows a few things. Number one, the Democrats aren't simply out of touch with the movement in the streets. They have made it clear that they are enemies of the movement, not only for refusing to defund the police, but for their condemnation and violent repression of the movement against racist police terror. And it's as true in Minneapolis as it is here in D.C. and other Democrat-controlled cities, all the way up to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris themselves. But it also shows that as long as the capitalist state is in place, it will never voluntarily dismantle or abolish its, its police force or its court system or any of these institutions because they're too vital in protecting the ruling class's interests and its property. No, what we need to do is stay in the streets and continue building this movement until it's powerful enough to overturn this capitalist system and bring in a whole new system that actually provides for people's basic needs. Well, a coalition of CEOs from major companies like IBM, Merck, and Nike announced in a Wall Street Journal exclusive just the place you would announce something like this, it seems. A new project aimed at creating one million jobs for black Americans, mainly people without college diplomas, high school uh, diplomas mainly, or high school diplomas only, mainly is what they're focusing on. They say the initiative is housed in a $100 million startup. It's gained the backing of companies as wide-ranging as American Express, Bank of America, Target, Walmart, Whirlpool, and Johnson & Johnson. So, not exactly the minor leagues here. Merck CEO Ken Frazier, he's an African-American, told the journal that the corporate leaders were moved to action by the mass protest in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. He also told the journal that they were focused on creating quote-unquote family-sustaining jobs with upward mobility starting at $40,000 a year depending on the area of the country. Now, two major things jump out at you right away here. First, this is just another nail in the coffin of this whole idea that uprisings get you nothing. They say the only way is to, to work through the system and vote and do this and do that and be peaceful, but it seems like raising a little hell got the attention of many of the most powerful people in this country, quite frankly, in the world, and motivated them to do something at least. And it certainly has some precedent. In the wake of the Detroit uprising in 1967, local elites did something very similar, creating a significant number of manufacturing jobs and breaking down barriers to skilled trades for black workers. However, this was a concession, not a part of an organized plan, so the benefits came crashing down on the rocks of deindustrialization there. Which brings us to the second point. It may be very well-intentioned, but this won't work. It won't work. The actual realities of capitalism mitigate against it. Take the family-sustaining wage issue, for example. First, for a single person with one child, there are very few places in the country where $40,000 a year is going to constitute a living wage, which 
to me seems like family sustaining the definition of that. Second, the pattern of job creation in this country is itself closely linked towards places with lower wages, at least structurally by industry, particularly in the southeastern portion of the country. Take South Carolina, for instance, a growing site of manufacturing investment. In Spartanburg, there's a BMW plant there. That's why I picked it. Starting work in an auto factory is making about $33,000, $35,000 a year. A living wage for a single person with a child in Spartanburg is $46,000 a year. Two parents and one child, $51,000 a year. And we're talking here in terms of the jobs they're creating, essentially one million jobs that wouldn't happen otherwise. So ask yourself, realistically, you can create jobs in South Carolina. It's growing. You can see it. It's happening. But how many jobs can you create over and above the ones that were already being created? with salaries that are equivalent to the top of this wage scale among working class jobs that people are realistically going to be getting. I mean, you know, it's obvious that it's not going to seem like it's that many, which means that really two things are going to happen. Best case here, best of intentions, I should say. Either what I just said, you're going to create many fewer than one million jobs, many of them probably in niche industries that can grow up in broader clusters of a growing developing economy, and they'll provide the standard of living that's not just surviving, but thriving. I think that, you know, should also be in the definition of family sustaining jobs. Uh, and that might be good, but it would be well below the goal and thus not have a huge impact. Uh, and we could argue about 1 million anyway, but be that as it may, uh, the other thing that could happen is you will create the 1 million jobs, but a big chunk of them are going to be below a living wage. So you may be better off than where you were before, no doubt about that, but it won't be in any meaningful sense family sustaining. The truth is, in this huge economy involving trillions of dollars and hundreds of millions of people, $100 million and a lot of goodwill, if they even have that, isn't enough to change the broader flow of investments, wages, and employment practices. On its own terms, it can't truly succeed in the moral vision that it has laid out. And imagine how quickly all of these kind words will disappear if there's, say, a financial crisis soon. Capitalism cannot save black America. Our problem isn't jobs, it's not income, it's not wealth per se, but it's that most black people are workers and workers have no control over the economy. They just have to survive somehow. We need democratic control over the economy, socialism, if you want to give it a name, to direct resources to where they do the most good, not to where they are the most profitable. <laughs> few hundred migrants set off for the United States from Honduras yesterday and what many are predicting could be a, another large flow of migrants from Honduras and Guatemala in the wake of two devastating hurricanes in November that hit those two countries, just heavily exacerbating the deep inequalities that have forced many to flee for survival in recent years. Also hit Nicaragua, by the way. The situation in Guatemala and Honduras is, is absolutely bleak. The United Nations reports that 400,000 people remain in ill-equipped temporary shelters. 140,000 homes, 140,000 homes were destroyed in the storm. As many as 330,000 people in Honduras are cut off from emergency assistance because the roads have been destroyed. Communications have also been taken down. And this is in two countries with just dire social situations already. 49% of children in Honduras, for example, suffer from chronic malnutrition. At, you know, you look at conditions like that. Part of why recently 500,000 people protested in the capital and burned the national legislature. The governments responsible for the sad state of affairs here are heavily backed by the United States. 
States, and, and in many ways, both recent and long-term, born in coups backed by the United States. You have Guatemala, a series of governments following a U.S.-backed coup in the 50s, established a brutal right-wing establishment there, responsible for the genocide of hundreds of thousands of indigenous people and lineages from that uh, just horrible group of people right into today's government. In Honduras, you've got a right-wing establishment brought in after a U.S.-backed coup in 2009 uh, under your boy Obama. The current president is so openly corrupt, U.S. prosecutors openly name him in major drug trafficking cases, yet his regime just remains supported. It's it, unbelievable. It's it, Honestly, what they accuse the Venezuelan government of vis-a-vis drug trafficking with no uh, evidence, here's the evidence, and they just don't care. They just keep backing the guy. But, you know, one thing I want to note here is I did mention Nicaragua earlier, where there is not a large expected flow of migrants post-hurricane, at least to the United States, and there haven't been any really during this whole cycle of these uh, big Central American refugee flows. Why? Well, I'll give you one major reason. Nicaragua is a part of the Venezuela-Cuba-anchored ALBA Development Alliance that includes many Caribbean nations, and they have used the hundreds of millions of dollars in aid they've gotten over the past decade or so to create a sustainable, growing economy that's made it, quite frankly, an oasis of stability in the broader Central American region. I'm not saying it's some paradise or the greatest country ever, but they deserve a lot of credit for being one of the countries that is avoiding the problems that seem to be roiling everyone around them and have created one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the world, backed 100% to the hilt by governments that are backed 100% to the hilt by the United States. So you're hearing all this capitalism versus socialism in the context of American politics. Well, what's the record between capitalism and socialism in terms of what's happening in Central America? That's something to think about when you think about who's demonized and who's lionized in the U.S. media. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.